0: Hi, everyone. I'm Steve Madden, General Manager of MMM, and you're listening to the MMM podcast, sponsored by our friends at Real Chemistry. This installment is the latest in a co branded series we have worked on with Real Chemistry. It's called The Vaccination Project, and it features a conversation between Jim Weiss, the founder and chairman of Real Chemistry. And Dr. Monica Gandhi, Professor of Medicine at UCSF. They're discussing important details about the Omicron variant, including precision medicine, risk tolerance, and the tools we have for population immunity in the near future. Let's listen in.
1: Welcome, Dr. Gandhi. It's a pleasure to have you on again. You're one of our favorites, as you know. We felt like going into the break, Jim had a, a great idea, which was, Let's talk to someone that's an actual expert, right, versus uh, the Facebook and other places that we hear all sorts of information. You know, you're an infectious disease physician, HIV researcher. And so we wanted to start with this basic, we have this new Omicron variant. It seems to be turning a lot of the rules on its head. Would love to get a current state of the state from you and where things stand with it. And what does it mean to what's happening today?
2: Yes. Okay, great. So, I mean, I would just say that I really think that this is a a variant that is very different than the other. So how do we think about Omicron? It's much more transmissible, maybe four times as transmissible as Delta, according to a uh, Japan study. But And we can see that. I mean, it's just obvious how transmissible it is. But there's no doubt about it being less virulent now. I mean, anyone who's saying it's not, we're a month in you know, we're at Christmas and we used to be at Thanksgiving. So when it first got described and and the data is very clear. I mean, we knew Delta wasn't less virulent. It was obvious within days um, from India, but this is less virulent. And why do we know that? Well, those with Omicron, 80% uh, less likely to get hospitalized than any other COVID wave in South Africa. In the Scott University uh, from Scotland yesterday, showing us 60% less likely to be hospitalized with Omicron than with Delta. And there are two possible reasons why it's less virulent. One is that we just may have so much more immunity in the population in December 2021, either from vaccinations, it was only a 25% vaccination rate in South Africa, or from natural immunity. There was a paper from South Africa that showed they have 76% seroprevalence. But the second reason is it could be less virulent itself. And I think that's very important to point out to people. University of Hong Kong and the University of College London, which is a great lab, just verified uh, their same findings, that it doesn't seem to infect lung cells. It's all up here, like, a, like an upper respiratory tract infection. That's what colds do. Um, they, they infect uh, cells up here in the bronchias. So it really, this is a variant that is less formidable of a foe. So we're going to see lots of cases, but we're not seeing the degree of severe illness at all than we did with Delta.
1: Well, thank you for clarifying that. And that's, I think what we're seeing in front of us, I know that I have family members, we have friends that are testing positive at a, at a rate that we've never seen before, but they seem right. to be working through this and in more like it's a, it's a flu, right? Versus it's as deadly. These are people, of course, that are vaxxed. Many of them are boosted as well.
2: Which That's they, a very Jim? important point. The vaccines right. totally work against Omicron, right? Like we can't just do antibodies with the immune system. That is that is the line years of immunology research. We have T cells, we have B cells and T cells. The paper coming out in the Washington Post today about this actually, that really clearly explains it. That if you're sitting in an ER, I write it, wrote it with an ER doctor in California. He's like, really, we're not seeing, we're not seeing COVID. Uh, we're, we're in the middle of a winter surge with cases. And we saw it last year, hospitalizations. We're not seeing it this year because we're highly vaccinated. We're, we're seeing everything else that used to come into the year.
3: So what about kids? Because I know you have um, a child, we've talked about this before, you know, kids who aren't boosted or haven't gotten it yet because, you know, they're too young. Is there any a special risk there or any particular precautions? People with families, a lot of my people here, um, have you know teen and young children uh, who may not yet be boosted or can't get it? What what would you say in those cases on how to how to think about this?
2: So no data that Omicron's any different than any other COVID variant. In fact, it's likely less virulent, and COVID always spared the young relatively, right? Like we knew that severe disease was much more common in older people, especially much older people, and children in general. It has to do with, they don't have much of this, something called an ACE2 receptor in their nose. So they're not able to take in the virus as well when they're little. And then also it has something to do with their innate immune response. was a nature paper that they're just better at controlling it. So children are not, um, more at risk uh, from Omicron. They've always been relatively safe. So I've always thought of my um, 11-year-old before he got his first dose, which he's, he has gotten his first dose, as someone who I could take around for the last two years happily because I knew he was so much at less risk, less risk for severe disease. And there's no change here. They're, they just really are, are safe. So I would say um, I do believe in child vaccinations. I've gotten both my children vaccinated, 13 and 11. But they are not eligible for boosters, and that is just fine because they 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 have a great immune system. So feel free with your children who are vaccinated to do whatever you're going to do. And then your children who are unvaccinated, which at this point only four and un, uh, five and uh, four and under can't get vaccinated, do feel safe about uh, uh, about how they're doing because um, they're really not at risk for this. In fact, the South Africa data showed that even children who are hospitalized with COVID. 85% it was because it was in their nose cuz it's so transmissible but they were there for something else they were there for uh, a childhood hospitalization for appendicitis or something but they had it in their nose so really no data from south africa that shows us young children are at risk
3: so what about mass then you know you're the queen of mass in my mind um you know would you Give us a little primer on when to use them, what kind, you know, how how much, you know, do we have to switch the kind? I know we went away from cloth and to the surgical. Do we have to go to N95? What, what, what do you think about all that?
2: So I, I have thought a lot yeah. about masks and written about them during this pandemic. And I think we're in a phase where we should think of people who are at high risk of getting a severe breakthrough, that would be immunocompromised, people older than 65, if they haven't been boosted, especially people with multiple medical conditions, those three groups, or those who are around the immunocompromised and don't even want to get a mild infection because they could pass it on to their immunocompromised relative. I'm in that position. My father recently became immunocompromised. I would wear masks for those. I don't think we need to have everyone N95 up for Omicron, um, especially since... um, It's so much more mild and we're so much of money of us are protected, but those groups do need to wear the right kind of masks. And those masks are N95, which is uncomfortable. We now have this FFP2, which is actually really comfortable, as good as an N95, a KN95 or a KF94 um, or even a double mask with surgical cloth. Five types of masks whichever one's comfortable for you, if you are at risk for severe infection. On a plane, I would just wear surgical unless you're at risk for severe infection and then I'd amp it up. Um, and, and that's how I think of masks now at this phase of the pandemic.
3: So it sounds like you, you recommend people travel if they want, you know, as they have been, and, and it's not something they have to stop doing during this period.
2: No. I mean, in fact, if anything, Omicron is making it more obvious that it can't control spread. It's kind of like controlling the wind. Um, But what we can do is protect ourselves from what we were so dreading about COVID-19 that it caused severe disease. We have vaccines. We have Boosters. We have vaccines down to five. We have good masks for people who want to have no risk of even getting the mild infection. We have uh, therapeutics. We have Paxlovid and, and Molnupiravir for those of our friends who who have declined vaccination um, at this stage in the pandemic. Uh, and those we what I mean by friends is we have to treat people who haven't vaccinated with compassion. So we need to keep them out of the hospital too. And now we have therapeutics to do so on December 23rd, 2021, we are in a good phase of this pandemic. People should live their lives.
1: So a quick related question is we are going into the holidays. Um, People I know have a lot of questions about, should I do gatherings? If so, what size, what precautions do I need to take? Should I be testing all those things? What's your guidance there?
2: So I think everyone should be really thinking of their holidays, you know, to absolutely be together because I think we're in just such a different phase. Last year was different. But two things I would do differently. Uh, One is that I don't think everyone needs to test before their holiday. For example, we now have four good contact tracing studies that if you're asymptomatic have no symptoms and you're vaccinated you're not wildly spreading the virus at all this was careful contact tracings from singapore from summer camps here from uh, oxford from harvard so when do you have to test to go into your gathering one if you can get Uncle X to please test if he's unvaccinated, that would be great. If not, Uncle X has to go by the window. And then uh, second is test if you're not feeling well. So if you could, if you're vaccinated, but you have symptoms, you it could be Omicron. And I would test in that situation so that you can stay away from the immunocompromised or probably not go at all. So again, only those two, because Let's admit it, 500 million more tests, we're not in a place where we're in a wash in tests. I think some physicians and Google and others have a lot of access to tests, but, um, but why test everyone just if we know that asymptomatic vaccinated aren't spreading it? If you don't feel well and test the unvaccinated members who are older.
3: And what about quarantining? It sounds similar, you know, if you've passed by someone who has Omicron or, you know, May or may not, especially if they weren't symptomatic. It sounds like you probably, yeah, test as a precaution, but it, it doesn't sound like you have to go into a seven to ten day quarantine.
2: No, and in fact, even the CDC, which is a little slow on, you know, getting us to 2022, has endorsed test to stay for schools. So all that means is if you've been exposed to the virus. Test if you're negative. Go about your day, um, or go back to school. Um, go to school. So that means yes, if you've been exposed to someone, test and then go to the party. And then we also have to change our isolation right procedures. If you've had a mild symptomatic breakthrough, what Delta showed us is that you're likely not infectious after five days. You're probably not going to even be infectious after a shorter period with Omicron. We need to shorten our isolation period during uh, now because we're still in in 2020 with. A vaccinated people saying 10 days that is going to just severely limit our workforce. It should be five days based on the data from Delta and if you test negative at three days go back to work.
3: so I closed my offices uh, when this started to hit especially in New York my you know that's our biggest office in San Francisco. I, I didn't really want to invite people to even spread it and get that cold because it seems like even if you do get it, you're probably down for the count for a couple of days anyway like you might with a severe cold or flu. It seems like maybe in the new year, it's an easy thing to lift relatively quickly after we have a better feeling about it. What are your thoughts to businesses in terms of how they treat this?
2: I think that's a great point. In a way, this happened in our country kind of at an okay time in terms of people having holidays anyway. But it is two things. One, it's going to peak fast, right? Because we saw that from South Africa. So it peaked three weeks. So if it started in this country, it started ramping up 73% of new infections described on Monday, we should peak within three weeks of that. Uh, So that's going to be the first week of January anyway, or like maybe the second week. And beyond that, if we can't learn to live with mild infections, especially when we're vaccinated, we will always be shutting down for cases. And so a couple of pieces that I wrote over the last three weeks, one in the New York Times eight days ago, which said at some point it can't be on case numbers, how we um, put restrictions on the population because it is an endemic virus. And what Singapore did two months ago is they said, we're not going to tell you uh, public the case numbers. We know you want to know, but We're going to be tracking them, promise, trust us, and health departments, but we're going to tell you about COVID hospitalizations, and that's what we're going to worry about. And ever since then, the country has been so much more relaxed because the media isn't going up and down with case numbers. So we encourage that in the New York Times piece. And then yesterday, we wrote a piece in Time that said, what do we need to be doing in 2022? And it is going back to life, living as normal, protecting the vulnerable, as we just talked about, knowing who's vulnerable to severe breakthroughs. Advising on the right type of masks for the vulnerable patients during, uh, during indoors, um, being indoors, and everyone else who isn't in those categories living um, as if it's normal. Not asymptomatic testing because there's going to be a lot of people with Omicron in their nose, and going back as much as we can to 2020 to 2019 and 2022, knowing that we have therapeutics now for our unvaccinated, and we know how to protect those at risk for severe breakthroughs.
1: Can we ask a quick question, Dr. Gandhi, about the types of tests? Because we know we have two predominant flavors, right? There's the antigen and the PCR. Antigen are more available, faster, easier. PCR are more reliable. Any guidance in terms of which you should be using, when you should be using maybe one versus the other?
2: You know, PCR will will detect even a little bit of virus in your nose because it's very sensitive. So that doesn't actually tell you if, anything clinically meaningful anymore because you could have a little bit of virus, but you're not going to pass it on. It's not infectious, especially if you've been vaccinated because we start killing that virus right away with our immune system, but it could be picking up viral debris. So I wouldn't um, do PCR at all. I would just use rapid antigen, which should tell you that you have a high enough viral load to pass it on. You still don't know if you can pass it on because what the rapid antigen doesn't test is infectiousness, is the how sick the virus is and the virus starts getting sick. There was data from the Netherlands among vaccinated uh, Delta breakthroughs and among healthcare workers that if you cultured their virus, it was sick. Like even if you had it in your nose, because why wouldn't it be sick? Your immune system's doing everything possible to to kill it. It doesn't tell you still if you're infectious, but it it tells you more so, at least that you have a higher viral load. So I'd only do rapid antigen at this point. And again, only if you're symptomatic and, um, or if you're unvaccinated.
3: So you're so practical and so real world. I mean, what if someone was here was more conservative because you do hear more conservative pundits out there, what would you say to them? I mean, how, you know, you're backing this all up with data. You've written a ton of papers. I mean, you know, I think referring us to some of those is excellent. And, you know, we'll get that at the end. But what would you say to that? I mean, how are you? Do you get into it with these people? I'm just sort of curious how that. No, goes. it's a
2: really, it's a really fair question. Um, you know, I actually think it isn't the duty of a public health officer to put out their own risk tolerance to the public in the sense that it isn't what's going to go on with COVID. Shouldn't be on my risk tolerance, on Doctor Fauci's risk tolerance, and Doctor Walensky's risk tolerance it should really just be on data. And um, so I have maybe more risk tolerance for myself as a vaccinated boosted person who's a healthcare worker. I have no risk tolerance for my 87-year-old father who's going through chemotherapy. So I will be advising him, buying his masks for him, uh, telling him what he's supposed to be doing with indoor dining right now, which is not while he's going through this. But I can't tell the entire public Uh, to do that, um, that is called risk stratification. And we as public health officers have to be, we have to to advise people based on their own risks. A young 11-year-old and 13-year-old, my children, or very low risk. My 87 year old father is very high risk for getting a severe breakthrough. I don't make blanket population recommendations for everyone based on him. I have to make it based on data for everyone else. So, do you see what I mean? It can't be on people's on individual risk tolerances. That's very helpful. I, one
1: um, question I know that comes up a lot, and I'm about to get my booster on uh, Sunday what is the risk? tolerance or the the risk, you know, in terms of someone that's been boosted versus not, I have Pfizer, you know, two Pfizer shots for my first go around. Any specific guidance on that one?
2: Well, it's true that getting boosted will increase your antibodies temporarily. So it'll get us through this kind of hump through the surge because we're going to be less at risk for even getting a mild Omicron infection. By the way, two doses have done very well in terms of protecting against severe disease because there hasn't been the massive uptake of boosters in many parts of the country, but two doses have been really great in terms of protecting you from severe disease. So I think it's a good idea to get us through this hump, but I would be a little more nuanced. And that's what our time piece yesterday said. If I were a young man and it had my two doses, uh, let's be nuanced about whether we have risk factors like myocarditis that would advise them to give their third shot. Let's be nuanced about someone who's had previous infection. Young man means... um, 16 to 29, that's where we're seeing the highest risk of uh, myocarditis. Someone who's had previous infection and one dose can actually get, uh, there was a paper coming out in January, I'll send that to you, can get quite bad side effects if you give them a second dose after they've already had infection and a first dose. So this is called precision medicine. Never before we just said that the entire population do one thing. We have to have some more precise definitions of boosting.
3: Are all the vaccines created equal? We saw some CDC discussion about J&J, and I don't want to, you know, let's not scare anyone, whatever. The point being, you know, are, and then obviously in other countries they have AstraZeneca. So are they all created equal? Is there some that are better to, to focus on or not? What are your thoughts on that?
2: In in the same way of precision medicine, we should also remember the adverse effects that are both rare, but they're associated differentially with each vaccine. Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, and Sputnik V are all called DNA and no virus vaccines. Their serious adverse effect, which is very rare, is clots, uh, clots. They can be actually quite serious. And um, AstraZeneca is widespread around the world. They haven't like pulled it or anything because it is really a very low risk. Johnson Johnson is associated with that same level of clots, but those clots are more likely in young women. So, for a young man, again, precision medicine, Johnson Johnson may be the best booster for them after two mRNA vaccines. Going to the mRNA vaccines, what are their risks? Also, extremely safe. But a rare risk of myocarditis or pericarditis, heart inflammation, uh, most after the second dose, most most in young men, most up to the age of 29, which is why actually some countries don't even use Moderna um, in those under 30, because the risk factors was more with 100 microgram, which is Moderna, as opposed to 30 microgram, which is Pfizer. And a recent Canada study showed us that you're five times more likely to get myocarditis if you got Pfizer within Thirty days of each other spacing made it go away. Eight weeks apart made the myocarditis risk go away. So this is called precision medicine. We should be doing things more precisely. We have lots of options. I would rather boost a young man with Johnson and Johnson and boost a young woman with mRNA. Think about the different risk factors where they occur. Maximize safety and effectiveness.
3: And then finally, you know, with the new ones, uh, how how do we? You know, everybody kind of wants to know how do we get it? You know, use it. What's the process there? You you know, obviously you have to test and then get prescribed. Are they going to be easy to get or, you know, what do you know about them so far?
2: Great question. Molnupiravir was just approved by the FDA today. So that's the um, nucleoside analog that basically if given to unvaccinated people at high risk, Reduce the risk of hospitalization and death by 30%. That's good. It's not amazing, but it's good, right? Because anyone going to the hospital mostly are unvaccinated. Um, Right now, uh, you're much more likely to be hospitalized if you're unvaccinated. In fact, that risk is 44 times higher in LA County as of now to be hospitalized if you're unvaccinated. So we need treatments for our unvaccinated. So even 30% bringing it down is good. Paxlovid though, even better, Um, just it's 89% protection against hospitalization and death. If you get it and you're unvaccinated and you're at high risk, that isn't yet out, but it's going to come. The one thing I'll say is that production needs to be ramped up, but but the government did buy massive doses for both, 10 million up to 30 million courses for Paxlovid. So we should get them soon. We don't yet have the capacity to give them out like like water, but we, we should get it soon. And we can hopefully get even our vaccinated breakthroughs who are at risk. Paxlovid, for example. So someone who, like my father's immunocompromised, if God forbid he got a even mild infection, I'd want him to get Paxlovid to prevent him from even getting a severe breakthrough. So, so we need him for our vaccinated and unvaccinated. But having these two therapeutics at the end of 2021 is sure making 2022 look a lot brighter. So good. So I
3: think we can go in and for the next few months with a feeling of hope and optimism, and maybe just give us a, a how 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 do you think this is going to play out over the next couple months, few months.
2: I mean, I do think Omicron is going to find a lot of unvaccinated people and vaccinated with mild breakthroughs. If they're out, that will actually boost the immunity of those who are vaccinated. There was a study from JAMA that shows it gives you what's called hybrid immunity. You get a wide, diverse immunity against the virus. And then it's going to find unvaccinated, unfortunately, but the unvaccinated hopefully will have less virulent disease than we saw during Delta. It will cause a lot of immunity. It'll peak at hopefully mid January, and then it will come down and it will come down fast if we do anything like South Africa, which why wouldn't we, why wouldn't it look the same? It'll come down fast. We'll have a lot of immunity on population. I think we're going to do really well after that peak and then coming down and then we'll have therapeutics and then we need to learn how to live with this virus, which we can, we have the tools.
3: So we, we can pronounce victory in 22 or at yes. least live with
2: it? Unless for some reason it becomes more virulent or we get another more virulent virus, um, this is the right virus to help end the pandemic. This is the right variant.
3: Excellent, great way to end. And uh, Dr. Gandhi, thanks so much for Thank spending a half hour. Happy with holidays
2: us. to both excellent. of you. Nice to talk to, to, to you. you. Thank thank yes, much. thank you, Dr. Gandhi. Sure. Right. Okay,
0: Talks bye. Soon. We'll be back soon with another episode of the mm m podcast. For mm I'm Steve Madden, general manager. Thanks for listening.